question for you. As we think about James chapter 1, verses 2 to 12 today, what do you do when you're given a lemon? Lemon curd? Is that what you said? Any other options? <laughs> Some people, when they're given lemons, they just throw them away, let them fall off the tree and rot on the ground. Some people don't like lemons, so they give them away. Seems like there's a glut of lemons when they're falling off the trees here in New Zealand. Some people try to destroy them or whatever. There's all kinds of options. Personally, I like the lemon curd option. That sounds yummy. How, how, how many of you ever make lemonade when you're given a lemon? Oh, that's, that, that's one of my favorites. I, I'm just asking that question because sometimes when people come to what James is talking about here in chapter 1, they, uh, they try to do some of those other options when, you know, because they think of trials as kind of like giving a lemon. You know, it's, there's some people they just don't like that. It's, you know, it's really bitter and sour. You know, I'm going to throw it away or give it away or destroy it or do something other than something profitable with it. What do you do when you're given a trial? Well, really, I, I, I can only think of two options. You can either become a victim or a victor. Your perspective means so much. Your perspective on this will, be, will just change it. I mean, all too often, trials prompt us to grumble and complain. You're kind of like the guy in the screen here. You're just whinging, whining, complaining, right? Well, that kind of response is not going to contribute to your Christian maturity. <laughs> See, God wants you to grow up and be mature. And it only makes matters worse when we just grumble and complain about the trials. See, my friend, again, your perspective is going to make all the difference here. How do you view the trial? You, you see, trials are not to be seen as tribulations in your life, but they should be seen as testings. It should be seen as a test, if you will. And what's the purpose of a test? What's the purpose of a test? You'll see a picture of a test here. These things used to scare me in university. But the purpose of a test is you give the test to a student to see if they can pass. Have they learned anything? You know, some students look at it and say, well, that's given to me so I pass out. And I, you know, no, it's so you can hopefully pass. The test is going to reveal what's in your brain, hopefully. And so James is, kind of think of it this way, he's giving you a test. God's giving you a test in the trials. And so James is going to give you some sound advice on, well, how can you score high or be mature in the test? And you have to bring the right attitude to the trial. So James is going to help us with that attitude. And you also have to understand there's advantages of the trial. And you have to know where to get help in that trial. And guess what? James is going to do that as well. And so, let's go to James chapter 1. See what he says about these things. James 1, starting in verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We'll stop there for today. So here's the main idea. The main idea of James is God wants you to be a mature Christian. But this particular text is focusing on this idea here, that a mature Christian rejoices in trials. A mature Christian rejoices in trials. But James starts off with our mindset. How are we thinking? What is the correct attitude to have in trials? Because in verse 2 he says, To count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's a command. It's in the imperative, in the original language. You are to count it all joy. Now to the persecuted Jewish believers that were scattered amongst the nations, James gives a very surprising advice. Well, if you don't really understand what God's teaching, it might be surprising to you to this this idea of count or to consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. I mean that 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 command is an is an interesting one. I mean that's what he's starting off with here. So what is it what does the command really mean? And the answer to that I, I always find it helpful to think about what it doesn't mean, and we'll then we'll talk about what it actually means. Here's what it doesn't mean. This is not a command for you to have joyful emotions during your trials. That would be really difficult for God to command us to to do that. In fact, that's kind of creepy even to think about it. It, uh, God is not demanding that we enjoy our trials. There's a difference between enjoying them and rejoicing. I'll explain this a bit more. Uh, But but it's, it's not a command that uh, when you go to your GP and the GP says, you have cancer, you're going to be dead in a few weeks, it doesn't mean you have to stand up and shout hallelujah, praise the Lord. Your GP is probably going to think that's a bit creepy. If you want to do that, and that's your perspective, you're ready to go to heaven, I mean, go for it. Uh, probably have a really good witness to your GP, but that's not the command here. We're not to rejoice when our parents divorce. We're not to rejoice in sin, in other words. We're we're not to be happy 
when our friend stabs us in the back with their slander and their gossip. That's not what it's talking about. So what is it talking about? Well, notice that the trials here, number one, trials should be faced with an attitude of joy. It's not based upon your experiences, your circumstances of life. Trials should not be seen as a punishment or a curse, but they're actually something that should prompt you to rejoice in the Lord. So count it all joy, my brothers. But what does it mean, all joy? The idea is there that trials should produce this all joy or pure joy. Pure joy. In other words, the joy is something in you that is uh, full. It is unmixed. Uh, It's not just some joy that is mixed with some grief in your life. But God's saying it is pure joy. There's nothing else there except that joy. And so it's important to note that James did not say that a believer should be joyous for those trials, but you're, you have joy in the trial. I hope you can see the difference. And so when you're surrounded by trials in your life, one should respond with joy. It's not an option. This is something you must do. Now, most people, it seems like, they they count it all joy when they get to escape their trials, (laughs) right? They don't want their GP to tell them they have cancer. They want the clean bill of health, so to speak. And, And so James says here to count it all joy in the midst of your trial. You say, man, that's weird. How am I supposed to do that? Is that even possible? Well, let me give you some examples I love the example in the book of Acts, chapter 16, when Paul and Silas, just think about this for a moment. Imagine, put put yourself in their chains for, for the moment, okay, in their sandals. Put yourself in their sandals, right? So they've been severely flogged by a whip with really sharp objects and nasty things in it. They're in, in very intense pain. They have been put in prison in the stocks, and they're grumbling and complaining and just whinging and whining, right? No, you know your Bible's better than that. Here's what the Bible says. It's about midnight, it says, and Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, there's a good example of counting it all joy in the midst of their trial. There's also many examples you can look outside the Bible. I mean, a good one is the Fox's Book of Martyrs. You'll see a picture of a martyr here on the screen. Uh, There's such good examples of God's mercy and grace enabling them to praise Him and to rejoice in the midst of terrible circumstances. And God can enable you to do the same. More of a modern-day hero, uh, I, I hope she's a hero of yours, there's a paralyzed woman by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, you'll, you'll, um, she's got great books You, I'd recommend you read, but I remember listening to, I've listened to her a few times, one time she said, I thank God for my wheelchair. Wow. Now, she's quite genuine She's not artificial. 
Uh, she, she often talks about how hard it is to be paralyzed. In fact, uh, after she was paralyzed, she wanted to die. Uh, yeah, it was really hard. It's been hard all through her life, but she, did, she, she often thanks God for the wheelchair. What a great response. She's counting it all joy, pure joy. But we need to recognize, as James is saying here, number three is that trials should be expected in our life. Here's one of the ways the health, wealth, prosperity gospel has... They've, not, they, they've gone past distorting the truth. They've perverted and corrupted the truth. It is a false gospel. Because notice what James says, you count it all joy if you meet trials, right? No, he doesn't say that. He actually uses the word when. That's, that's a certain thing in your life. It's not if you experience trials, but when you experience trials, God commands us to count it pure joy. It's kind of like death. Trials are just one of those inescapable and unavoidable things. There are a few things in this world like that, but troubles and hardships and challenges to our faith is something you need to count on. Expect them. Number four. Trials occur in all shapes and sizes, James is saying. Because notice he says, not just when, but he says, when you meet trials of various kinds. They're various. And in other words, the, the idea is here, when he uses that word various, he's saying that they are diverse. They're, they're variegated. They're multicolored. In other words, they're going to come to you in all shapes and sizes. See, I can't just give you one scenario because your trial's probably going to be different from mine. Mine's going to be different from yours. So sometimes it's not helpful to just think of, of it as just one size fits all. It's not. <laughs> it's, it's in many shapes and sizes. So how can we find joy in trials? We're commanded to do that here in verse 2. How can you find joy in trials? Well, that's verses 3 and 4. So look at this, friends. We, we see here that it is possible Christians can face trials with joy because James shows us there are rich advantages and benefits from the testings that God gives to us. See, trials, when you, you rightly take them, they're going to produce great benefits and advantages in your life. Now, this should be no new revelation. Hopefully, this is a reminder Apparently, it was a reminder to these Christians, because James writes here, he says, notice what he says in verse 3, For you know. You know. The idea here, by the way, is you're, you, you know this through experience. <laughs> Everybody's experienced both the pain of problems as well as the ensuing profit of persistence. There is no gain in endurance without some investment in trials. I've learned it by experience several times in my own life. Hopefully you are as well. Uh, I've had some, some tough times in my life going through spinal cord surgeries and trying to recuperate and recover from that. Uh, 
going from great pain, lying in a hospital bed on my back, and not able to move for days, and and then you try to get out of bed all shaky and wobbly, and you know, you just just trying to do one lap around the hospital hall was a challenge. And then eventually, you know, you just keep building and building and building, and eventually you can do more and more. Long, hard process trying to recuperate from things like that. And, and yeah, often the saying is true, no pain, no gain. If you think about astronauts going into space experiencing weightlessness, you think, great! Yeah, it's easy. We just float around. Yeah, well, the muscles deteriorate rather quickly when you start doing that. You, you need some resistance. You, you need some pain. It, you need some something there that will help you. And, and Peter uses the same Greek word in his epistle, in 1 Peter 1, 7. Look, look what he says. I, I think it's the only other place in the New Testament. But in 1 Peter 1, 7, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, it's that word tested that James is using. Notice what Peter says. It is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's interesting how Peter says that because he he talks about your faith being tested. See, faith is like gold. You'll see a picture of gold on the screen here. Gold, when it's put in the fire, is able to stand the test of that fire. And, And without that approved standard of faith, trials would not yield the perseverance in our life, is what Peter's saying. If that was the case, there would only be ashes left over. But with gold, no. The fire actually purifies the gold. And that's the way it is with our faith. True faith. Like pure gold, endures. And it doesn't matter how, how hot that fire gets, it doesn't destroy the gold. And no matter how hard the trial is, it doesn't destroy your faith. True faith develops us. In other words, it works perseverance. It works that staying power, which James is talking about here. It brings steadfastness and endurance in the face of difficulties. It's interesting in verse 4, because he says, "And, and you let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, perseverance... Or endurance is only the beginning of the benefits in your life. There's there's more advantages to the trial than just perseverance. Perseverance is, if you keep letting it work and allowing God to work, He's going to finish that work. So just as tested in true faith works to to, to produce perseverance, so perseverance has to be allowed to continue. It's going to perfect you, or the idea of perfecting there is He's going to mature you complete you. He's going to bring about a spiritual fulfillment in your life. It's kind of the the ultimate byproduct, if you will, of that testing. And this, of course, is the lofty goal that is serving kind of as the unifying theme of James. See, James' main point here was to show how you can achieve spiritual maturity. If you want to be spiritually mature, you need trials. And you need to count those trials as pure joy, or all joy. 
And there's two words there that, that describe the goal for you in the text, and they are those words mature or complete. Mature and complete. Mature often is translated as perfect in some of our Bibles, or the idea is that it is finished. There's a finished product. And that is really coupled together with that word complete. And what, it, what it's doing is giving you the idea of perfected all over, not just one part, but all over you. You're fully developed in every part. Let me illustrate it this way. Hopefully you've seen a butterfly. Some of you may, may even have some swan plants. And it's, it's beautiful to walk, watch God's creation when, when the butterfly lays some eggs on a swan plant and you know, out comes the caterpillar and eats your swan plant. And then eventually the caterpillar goes and makes its chrysalis like that thingy there. And, and out pops a beautiful butterfly. And God's creation is, is helping to teach us this truth. Because did you know what happens if you look at that butterfly struggling to get out of the chrysalis? And some of you might be tempted, oh, that poor little butterfly. I'm going to go over and help it. Here, little butterfly, let me help you get out of your chrysalis. Do you know what you're going to do to that butterfly if you do that? You've just destroyed the butterfly if you do that, if you try to help it. Because God's designed it to develop strength to fly from its struggle from the chrysalis. God has designed that butterfly to struggle. It needs to do that so it can develop the strength and the endurance so it can fly and go lay some more eggs on, it, on somebody else's swan plant. Or whatever they do, I don't know. But struggle is good. The trials can be faced with joy because perseverance is going to result and if that perseverance carries itself to the full term it's going to develop a thoroughly mature christian notice god says you will lack nothing so we also need to remember number two here that you're going to be all god wants you to be that that, that's key you're going to be all god wants you to be not what your spouse wants you to be, or your children want you to be, or your boss wants you to be, or the government wants you to be. But, but James' argument here may seem logical. And you might understand in your head that you're thinking, okay, that makes sense, but, but uh, this is still really, really difficult, isn't it, for some of us, to, to see how can a trial actually be something where I actually welcome it into my life. Well, I think it's helpful to go to some other scriptures here for a moment. And let's just think about what are God's purposes for trials in our life. God has purpose for those trials. When He brings you affliction, and it is from Him, when He does that, what is His purpose in your life? Well, Scripture actually gives us some purposes. Number one, God is testing the strength of our faith. He's testing the strength of our faith. And in in many ways, God assists us in taking a spiritual inventory, if you will. And He does that by bringing the trials into our lives, and He's demonstrating to us the strength and the weakness of our faith. How are you supposed to know how mature are you? How are you supposed to know how strong your faith is if God never does that? It's, It's really difficult. But a person who becomes 
resentful or sometimes people become bitter. They, they might turn to just self-pity when the trials and, and, and the troubles come. And when that happens, it's exposing a weak faith. But, but on the other hand, you might be one of those people, uh, you, you might turn more to God when the troubles and trials come. And, and when life gets difficult and worse, you go to Him and you ask for help for His enabling to carry the burden for you since you can't do it. And so that ends up demonstrating a strong faith. Now my family has tried to memorize Habakkuk chapter 3, a very obscure book for a lot of people. But in the midst of a, a really bad situation, the prophet Habakkuk was pondering God's warning uh, for his people, Israel. And see, God was going to use the pagan Chaldeans to come and conquer his people. Many people were going to die. All right, This was really bad news. This was a horrible trial. But in the midst of all of that, in, kind of halfway through the book, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. Notice the response. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. You can kind of put that into your own life experience, whatever that might look like. When all goes wrong, supposedly, you can still exult. You can still rejoice. So why does God give us trials? What are the purposes? He's testing your faith. And number two, trials are given to humble us, the Bible says. God wants to humble us. He wants to remind us, hey, let let your trust be in God. Turn the, from your presumption and your self-satisfaction to Him. So the greater our blessings, you know what often happens is, that's, that's often more when Satan's going to tempt you to look at your blessings instead of the one who gave you the blessings. You're going to start looking at your accomplishments instead of the one who enabled you to accomplish that, rather than looking to the Lord. And so we can, the temptation is to become proud rather than humble. And it's interesting, the Apostle Paul testified about this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Look what he says. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Do you see what the Bible says? The trials for the Apostle Paul were there. Whatever that thorn in the flesh was, was there to humble him, to keep him from becoming proud. That's one purpose of trials. A third purpose is God allows us to suffer trials in order to wean us from our dependence on worldly things. He wants to wean us. We don't want to stay on the milk bottle the, our entire life, right? And so part of our problem, though, is that the more we accumulate 
material possessions and we, we gain more worldly knowledge, we gain experience or, or recognition from our workmates or whatever, then the more we could be tempted to rely on those things instead of God. That's the temptation. God doesn't want you relying on those other things. He wants you to trust in Him. To be weaned off those things. To be looking, gaining your strength and sustenance from Him. A fourth purpose is that God uses trials to call us to heavenly hope. To heavenly hope. See, the harder our trials become and and the longer those last, the more we tend to look forward to being with God and to be with Jesus. Certainly the case in my life. And, and although the Apostle Paul knew his ministry was not finished and that it was certainly important for him to continue his work here on earth uh, and, and to keep doing that for Christ's sake and for the sake of the church, it's interesting, Paul reveals his personal longing in Philippians 1 when he says, to depart and to be with Christ. He says, that is much better. But for your sake, I'll stay. And then in the letter to the church at Rome, I love these words in Romans chapter 8. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Look what he says here, because he talks about sufferings and, 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 and purposes of the sufferings. In Romans 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, but not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Are you waiting eagerly for it? It's there. God hasn't moved. (laughs) He's there. It's hard to see, I know, sometimes. You've got to see with the eyes of faith. That'll enable you to hope. There's a fifth purpose of our trials. God uses trials to enable us to better help others in their trials. Sometimes we struggle to help somebody going through a trial because we we haven't gone through anything like that. It's really hard to help them, isn't it? But look what Jesus told Peter in Luke chapter 22. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you... When once you have turned again, in other words, Peter, you're going to fail, but you're going to repent. So once you've turned again, you repented, strengthen your brothers. And did Peter ever do that? He was a great spokesman 
for the early church. You can read about him in the beginning part of the book of Acts. And so Peter's sufferings, Jesus says here, were, were given not only to strengthen him for greater usefulness, but also to prepare him to strengthen his brothers. The other apostles in particular were strengthened by Peter. How is that possible? Peter had great trials. He failed, but as God often does, he gives grace to us when we fail. And so he was prepared to strengthen the others. And this is true of every believer's testings, by the way. It's the same for all of us. God will use trials to enable us to better help others through their trials. So those are some reasons to rejoice in your trials. God has purpose in them. They're not random. They're not an accident. God has afflicted you for specific purposes. You may never understand them, but you must believe this, friends. You must count it pure joy. You say, okay, it's still hard. I need help. Well, that's why you have James 5-11. through Where do you go for help in trials? See, to, to those who just feel confused, you might feel frustrated, this is a really high, lofty goal. How can I possibly attain this? Notice James says, what did he say? The end of verse 4, lacking in nothing. Wow, that's a high, lofty goal. How can I attain that? Well, look what James says, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So James says, this is you. We all lack wisdom here. We all need help in our trials. So James says, assistance here is readily available from God. So the one who afflicts you is there waiting for you to ask Him to give you the grace to not just endure, but for God to use that trial to make you spiritually mature. And so those who lack wisdom, there's a valuable resource here that is available, but God says you have to ask Him for it. Ask Him for it. And James assumed his readers would feel the need for this wisdom, and so God will not only provide wisdom, but notice he says, when you ask him, he's going to do it generously. He's not going to be grudgingly doing this for you. He's going to be very generous. He wants to do this, but he wants his children to come to him and ask. You say, why do I need wisdom? Well, in this life, you're never going to fully understand what God is doing. And probably not in heaven either, for that fact, but... There's a wonderful poem that has helped me to understand this truth. Let me read this poem to you. Here's what it said. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He works steadily. Oft times he weaves sorrow and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Don't know who the author is, but I love the poem. You, you, 
hope I don't know. In our modern age, we don't really often see weavers like in the olden days. But just picture here for a moment. There's a guy here who's a weaver on the screen. But just picture that's not God, of course. But but God is kind of the in the poem. He is the weaver. What is he doing? He's blending all the the threads together, and the threads are representing the joy and the afflictions in our life. We may not understand what's going on, but but nevertheless, you still need to trust him for that. You say, why? Well, what did the poem say? I love what the poem says. See, God is the one who's the weaver, and he's the one who's seeing the, the top side of that tapestry, if you will, that he is making. And sometimes we're kind of like this other picture here. Uh, This is what we usually see. We we usually see the back side of the tapestry, which is not very beautiful. Because you got all these loose threads that, you know, it just becomes a jumbled mess usually. So you can choose to look at life that way, and you're going to be really frustrated and confused. You're probably going to be grumbling and complaining if that's your focus. But if you choose to trust in the one who sees the other side of the tapestry, then you will be able to have pure joy. Uh, Another thing we learn here is that God's provision comes with some prerequisites. God has some prerequisites. In other words, to receive God's wisdom in the trial here, the believer must be wise in how we ask. See, God says, ask him for the wisdom... Ask Him for this grace to endure and persevere in the trial. But when you ask, notice what God says. Verse 6, But let him ask in faith. Ask in faith. And the idea is you you must believe. Don't doubt, but believe. And the word doubt, by the way, is this idea you're vacillating. You're vacillating. You know, you're you're sitting on the fence. You're jumping off the fence. You're jumping over the fence, and yeah. And so God says, you're just really unstable. You're kind of left in no man's land, so to speak, when you're doing that. You're you're kind of like the wave of the sea. He says, you you don't want to come to God being tossed about like a wave of the sea, where you're blown around. You're tossed by the wind. Like this ship in the ocean. Any of you ever been on a ship in the ocean and you got big waves out there? It's it's scary. It's not a comfortable position. Because, see, God says here that he is not pleased with being double-minded. Double-minded literally means you are a two-souled person. You're unstable in all you do, in all your ways. See, God doesn't want us to be like that unsteady, staggering drunk. He doesn't really know who he is, where he's going, where do I live, what am I supposed to do, just out of control. So the answer from God here depends on assurance in him. So that's the prerequisites for us. See, God wants you to come to him. But but as you come to him, notice he says, come to him in faith, believing trusting, not doubting, don't be blown around, don't be tossed, don't be double-minded, come believing, trusting in faith. We also learn here that one who, number three, we see that uh, one who asks for wisdom needs to evidence hope. 
we're not going to d- dive deep into the, that, those particular verses 9 through 11, but, but uh, it, it's interesting the contrast between the, the lowly brother and the rich person, or the poor person and the wealthy person. It's a very interesting contrast. And, and the idea is here, whatever your social or economic position in life is, <laughs> whatever that is, the believer must see eternal advantages. There's eternal advantages in the trials. Why? Because social prominence passes away. It doesn't matter what your social position in life is. It's going to pass away. The wealthy, notice what God says there, 9 through 11. The wealthy is going to wither away like a flower in the hot sun. It's wither, wilt. The fame's going to fade away. They're going to die just like everybody else, and they're going to be forgotten just like everybody else. But hope in the eternal is evidence of believing faith. Where's your focus? Well, hopefully it's on God. Hopefully your trust is in Him. But let me encourage you with this thought in verse 12. What is the result of endurance in trials? God gives you hope. He gives you purpose. He gives you the result here in verse 12. Look what he says. Blessed. You you could even say happy in in a sense there that this man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he's going to receive something. You're going to be rewarded. This is for you if you do this. You're going to receive the crown of life which God has promised. Notice the prerequisite. It's only to those who love him. Only to those who love Him. So, here, 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 here's what God's saying, friends. The Christian who steadfastly endures these trials, and you come out the other side, you, you've endured, you've persevered, you, you've matured through this, you've stood the test, God says, you're going to receive a reward. That's what the crown of life is. It's a reward from Him. And literally, it, it, this crown consists of life. One of God's favorite concepts and ideas in the Bible. So this crown of life, by the way, is not just something that is for now. It's also for eternity. So you can get it now, but it's something that's going to keep keep its results happening in your life all through eternity if you love Him. Perseverance does not save us, by the way. That, that is certainly not what this is talking about. You don't save yourself. But, but God does this work in you, you, you if you persevere. And it shows that we are already saved, and it shows that you do have this eternal life. I love that word blessed there in verse 12. It's the idea of something that is a deep inner joy and satisfaction. It is the joy that only God Himself is able to give you. And, and that word crown is something borrowed from the Greek Games, particularly the athletic games of the Olympics. And, it, and for the, the Greek Olympic games, they didn't get, you know, these really shiny gold medals hung around their necks. No, no. If you won an athletic game in, in, in the Greek Olympics, you got a wreath placed on your head. That was the supreme result and reward. It was placed on the victor's head, symbolizing persevering triumph. And so God promises this kind of life to those who love Him. 
And so love for God is then enabling us to undergo trials to rest confidently in Him. Your steadfastness is going to reveal love for God. See, we can look at each other and and often tell. This is going going to show, okay, do, do I love God or not? Just watch someone go through a trial. I've seen several of you go through trials. Some of you I don't know well enough yet. But as I've watched some of you and prayed with you as you go through your trials, I'm rejoicing with you because some of you have endured and persevered. I've seen that the testing of your faith is genuine, and I thank God and I praise God. Of course it's hard, but it's I rejoice with you. And I hope you're able to as well. But asking for wisdom brings not only the blessing of wisdom, but also the blessing of winning. And to have the right attitude in the trials, you have to see the advantages of those trials, don't you? You you need to believe there's purpose in the hardness in what you struggle with. Sometimes it's difficult to see those advantages. And if you're one of those people, God says, ask Him. If you need wisdom, you, you, you can't see what he sees, then you need his wisdom. So ask him in faith. Ask correctly, and God says he's going to give you the right attitude in those trials. And so then you're able to rejoice in the trials. And if you do, you'll be blessed by enduring through those trials. So as we think about this wonderful passage, let me just summarize it this way for you. Here's some of the main ideas. Just kind of let me wrap it up this way for you. Number one, that God uses trials to produce staying power in those who endure. He's producing a staying power in you. He's giving you the grace you need so you can keep going, if you will. And then God provides the wisdom then to understand the trial. So you see there's purpose in it that will help enable you to keep going and enduring. And, and three, all believers can find encouragement now to rejoice over their position in life. Whatever that position is, whatever you go through, you are able to rejoice. And then number four, God promises a reward here, which hopefully gives us hope. You can hopefully see some light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. There is something down there, so keep running, keep enduring, keep persevering. Your, your trial is not all there is. There, there is hope, in other words. So, my friends, I, I hope God's words here, the Holy Spirit is inspired for you, will encourage you on your journey of spiritual maturity. God enable you to rejoice in your trials. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us these precious, precious words Yes, uh, this is hard. Worldly wisdom would tell us we need to escape trials. Uh, we, We need to be wealthy and wise and not have any problems and trials. But may we see this as something that comes from your very hand. And may we praise you for them. Would you give us the grace to be able to praise you for them? To recognize... You're behind what happens in our life, and you know what's best. You're producing what is good in our life, all for your honor and glory. There's great purposes and meaning behind what happens in our lives. It's not by accident. 
There's purpose. May we believe that and live that way. As we go through life, we're, we are going to, we, we, we see here we're going to experience them, so would you help us to expect the trials? And may we believe they're going to come in all kinds of various ways. That's not just one shape, not just one size. It's multicolored, it's variegated, it is diverse. And it's going to just keep coming as we live in this fallen world. But may we keep looking to You. May we see there is purpose. May we see You are behind all this. And may that encourage us. And may we be able to help others through their trials. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.